daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping and his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden seek the way forward for the strained ties during their summit in San Francisco. UN Security Council adopts resolution for humanitarian pauses in Gaza. And International Civil Aviation Organization accepts China's Beidou navigation satellite system. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has said the world is big enough to accommodate both the United States and China, and one country's success is an opportunity for the other. He made the remarks during a summit on Wednesday with his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden in San Francisco, California. The Chinese president said major country competition cannot solve the problems facing China and the U.S. or the world. He proposed five pillars to ease strained relations and push cooperation between the two nations. The two leaders sat down for the first time since last year's meeting in Bali, Indonesia. Liu Wei has more about the meeting. President Xi Jinping and his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden met for a summit during Xi's first trip to the United States in six years. President Xi made it clear that China does not have a plan to unseat the United States. But the Chinese president said the U.S. should not scheme to suppress and contain China. The Chinese president proposed building together five pillars for better bilateral ties. First, developing a right perception of each other, so the two countries can coexist in mutual respect and peace. Second, managing disagreements and untoward incidents effectively through calm, frequent communication. Third, advancing mutually beneficial cooperation, not just in traditional areas like trade, but in emerging and urgent issues such as climate change and artificial intelligence. Fourth, shouldering responsibilities as major countries by stepping up coordination and cooperation on international and regional issues. Fifth, promoting people-to-people exchanges. For his part, the U.S. president said a stable and developing China serves the interests of the U.S. and the world. President Biden reaffirmed his own five points: the U.S. does not seek a new Cold War or to change the Chinese system; it does not seek to strengthen alliances against China. The U.S. does not support Taiwan independence, and has no intention of conflict with China. That was Liu Wei reporting. So to delve into the summit between the two presidents and China-U.S. relations, joining us now are Shen Dingli, professor in Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Shen. Thank you. And we also have Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University. Great to have you, Professor Chu. Uh, thank you for having me, gentlemen. Let's start by taking an overview of Xi Biden's summit. The highly anticipated meeting has attracted high attention from the international community.、Uh, Professor Shen, how do you view the overall atmosphere of this engagement?、Uh, well, I think、uh, the two countries have well prepared for this me-、uh, summit, and、uh, this is the first. Uh, uh, Visit President Xi Jinping to the U.S. since uh, uh, for the last uh, uh, six years. Previously, President Xi visited the U.S. as president in 2013, 2015, 2016, 2017. But due to China-U.S. 
deteriorating relationship, especially due to the trade war and the pandemic, Corona, uh, are rocking down. Uh, we have to wait for a couple of years for Chinese president to return to visit the U.S. And the second feature is, uh, first APEC was inaugurated in uh, the west coast of the U.S., in Seattle, mm-hmm. in 1993. And 30 years later, uh, U.S. again hosted APEC. 30 years ago, President Jiang Zemin and President Clinton broke the ice. And previously, due to the U.S. so-called sanction against China, no high-level contact. But that uh, summit uh, broke the uh, ice. And now, China-U.S. relationship had lots of ice. So many uh, observers hope President Xi Jinping's visit will break the ice again. I think uh, to a greater extent, he has made it. Professor Chu, what's your take? How do you view the overall atmosphere of this summit? Because the meeting lasted four hours. Do you notice any distinctive features of this summit compared to previous China-U.S. high-level meetings? Uh, yeah, sure. I uh, agree with the Professor Shen's opinion. And uh, you can look at the both sides well-prepared for the summit. And especially uh, we can look at how the United States side uh, prepared uh, uh, and try to create a uh, friendly atmosphere of welcoming uh, President uh, Xi. And when uh, President Xi arrived in the airport, that is, uh, there are some senior uh, officials welcome President Xi at the airport. Mm-hmm. And especially uh, there is a special meeting, uh, I, I mean the San Francisco uh, to President Xi, and uh, 38 years ago, he visited the United States, and San Francisco was uh, his first uh, stop uh, of his trip. So uh, you can look at the governor of California and mention about that, right? And also uh, the President uh, Biden uh, showed a picture uh, that is uh, President Xi uh, 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 38 years ago when he was visiting the United States took. So... And I think from the both sides really uh, try to uh, make a very friendly uh, atmosphere uh, for this uh, summit. And you also mentioned uh, the summit continue uh, uh, four hours, and uh, that is instinct uh, in the preacher. And so we can look at that is why the two leaders uh, really uh, exchange ideas in uh, very wide uh, uh, issue areas. And that is why they reached uh, almost uh, on 20 uh, issue area and reached so many uh, uh, common understandings. Professor Chu, according to Chinese senior diplomat Wang Yi, uh, the two heads of state exchanged views, as you said, in an atmosphere of mutual respect on many issues concerning China-U.S. relations, as well as major issues concerning world peace and development. He said uh, President Xi's talk with Biden made an answer to a crucial question for China and the U.S., that is, are China and the U.S. partners or rivals? How do you look at this question, given the outcomes of this summit, when President Xi talks about China's principled position? So I think uh, this is actually is about, uh, presidency actually is about talking about the perception of the mindset of each other uh, countries. 
So when we look at why China and the U.S. relations suffered in recent years, and I think uh, the underlying logic that it, uh, lies in the United States side, that is there, they have a, a still maintain a Cold War mindset, that is a zero-game uh, uh, mindset. So, uh, and they pursue China. So that is why when uh, President Xi uh, said, if you look at China as a rivalry, and uh, it is uh, the major geopolitical challenge to the United States, and then uh, that will uh, make uh, take wrong uh, policies and uh, wrong uh, policy principles, and that will uh, go into disaster. But And he also said that China uh, look at the United States as a friend, as a partner, so uh, if the uh, I think the key actually uh, I think uh, presidency actually is talking about if both sides, especially for the United States, how a how a quiet perception and a mindset about China and the both countries really can find a quiet way uh, for co- uh, peaceful coexistence. Professor Shen, uh, would you like to weigh in on this? I want your perspective on this, because uh, in this summit, President Xi Jinping emphasized certain viewpoints and positions on behalf of China. What were the key points he elaborated on during the meeting? I think President Xi understands that, that quite many American people uh, have some worry. They worry about uh, if China is willing to partner with the U.S., they want China to partner, but they also have some suspicion. So President Xi wants to soothe their concern by saying, certainly China wants to partner with the U.S. You don't need to necessarily view China's improvement would hurt the U.S. He indicates a better America could benefit China and also a better China can benefit America. So we don't have a kind of a, 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 a loose-loose relationship. We could very much have a win-win partnership. So uh, we are willing to partner with America. But also, he said, uh, he seems to indicate that whether we can be partner not only depends upon China's willingness, mm-hmm. also depends um, on Americans' Uh, genuity, whether America would uh, implement its good words, no Cold War, to action. America should tell China America indeed does not view China as an enemy, and America need to implement its words uh, to translate it into action, especially in the area of Taiwan. So America should act in a way U.S. does not support uh, Taiwan independence. So of course, American can be can say even better. America is opposed to uh, Taiwan's independence, which is what President George W. Bush used to say. The U.S. Uh, is opposed to Taiwan independence. Professor Shen, earlier Professor Chu mentioned the results of China-U.S. cooperation during the summit covers a wide range of areas with consensus reached on over 20 issues. Are there any specific domains that you consider especially noteworthy or were there aspects that exceeded your expectations? Well, uh, certainly there are a lot of eye-catching areas that I feel excited Number one, to restore meal-to-meal uh, uh, exchange, uh, including new issue areas.
which is establishing uh, the war zoom level uh, direct interaction. Uh, in my view, probably China's Nanbu Zanqu, Southern War Zone, and the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. So the two military uh, may not need to interact between China's de- Department of Defense and the U.S. Pentagon. So our uh, mid-level officer can engage, uh, can discuss directly. That's very uh, much a, a, a new improvement. And the second, second area, uh, opening China-U.S. joint uh, anti-fentany, the anti-drug working group. This is an issue that has upset the U.S. for a long time. China is very much straightforward to say, let's partner together. And third, to increase cultural people-to-people exchange, etc., uh, to increase the uh, two-way uh, commercial airline uh, from actually four airlines uh, per week during the corona time to uh, 70 from November the 1st. But this is far lower than the 300 uh, per week uh, before the corona. So next year, we are going to increase more. Of course, I personally, I would hope China-U.S. would work out to reopen Chengdu Consulate General and Houston Consulate General. This has not been announced this time, probably still in the process of making. And how to make China-U.S. journalists to have more of them uh, to be sent to the other country. And also uh, climate change. At a unilateral level, China's national action plan and a bilateral China-U.S. cooperation and a multilateral at the corporate level. So the two countries were the partners. I think a lot of uh, development excess people's expectations. This is a real development. Professor Chu, do you share the same stance? Which specific area do you find particularly uh, noteworthy or were there any aspects that surprised you? So I would like uh, to uh, highlight one point, uh, just like uh, Director Wang Yi mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two uh, presidents, uh, they reached consensus on the guiding principle on the Sino-U.S. relations. And uh, 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 Director Wang Yi summarized the seven uh, terms. And the first is uh, mutual respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, second is peaceful coexistence. Uh, keeping communication, avoid uh, confrontation, uh, conflicts, adhere to uh, UN charter, and the cooperation on uh, issue area with common interest, and responsible, uh, responsibly manage uh, the competing uh, factors uh, of the bilateral relations. So I think in the principal level, these seven consensus. Uh, 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 are pretty uh, important. And uh, just like Director Wang Yi mentioned, uh, this seven consensus lay the uh, firm foundation for the further uh, uh, cooperation. And second, I would like one thing, uh, that is the uh, both leaders uh, agree and to resume almost all the uh, dialogue, uh, all the communication mechanisms uh, such as business, economic, finance, as for control, Asia-Pacific affairs, uh, maritime, etc. 
So I think uh, comparing to uh, several years ago, especially like during Trump administration, almost all the uh, channels already shut down. And uh, since uh, the second half of this year, uh, the channels and the dialogue mechanism uh, gradually assumed. So I think uh, the two uh, presidents really uh, now uh, reach a uh, consensus and uh, realize uh, the importance to keep regular communication uh, is important. Uh, but Professor Chu, when we're forging ahead, we cannot ignore the differences between the two countries. This and the sensitive issues were also addressed during their talks. President Xi provided a detailed explanation of China's principles and stance, notably on the questions like Taiwan and U.S. suppression on China economically and in high-tech sector, and highlighted that the U.S. actions are viewed not as a risk reduction, but as a risk creation. So how would you interpret his remarks here? What's your assessment of this discussion on sensitive issues between China and the U.S.? So actually, uh, we're talking about the, the Bali uh, agreement or consensus, and the United States already agreed, uh, for example, on Taiwan question, and the United States commit uh, one-China policy. But since then, and we can look at there's still uh, the, the United States uh, not consist with their commitment. So I think uh, that is why presidency really uh, directly uh, face-to-face to elaborate Chinese policy uh, principles, and such as the Taiwan question is the most important and sensitive uh, question uh, in the bilateral relations. And now um, China requires the United States adhering to one-China policy uh, against the Taiwan independence stop selling uh, arms sale to Taiwan and stop uh, interfering uh, Chinese domestic politics and uh, support China's peaceful unification. So I think this is a face-to-face directly and also add some new factors uh, to the one-China policy commitment. And for example, the other uh, issue, and I think this is the first time, mm-hmm. and the president uh, directly uh, 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 tell uh, his counterpart, uh, President Joe Biden, and that the United States uh, surprising China uh, in uh, technology and uh, economic relations. Uh, that is now the risk, and actually is creating risk. And China will, uh, we will, uh, if the United States continue to surprising China, the Chinese technology, and that is containing China a uh, high uh, quality uh, development. That is. Uh, uh, violate uh, Chinese uh, development interest. And that means, uh, and actually, uh, presidency implies that China will uh, firmly safeguard our national interest. Professor Xian, how would you evaluate the dialogue surrounding sensitive issues between China and the U.S. that took place during the summit? Of course, uh, two sensitive issues. One is the meal-to-meal interaction. This uh, a summit has made a big improvement. Naturally, in Bali summit, the two countries agreed that they are going to uh, re- restore the meal-to-meal uh, relationship. But uh, due to various uh, incidental uh, uh, kind of issues, uh, this uh, expected outcome did not work out. But this time, a year later, the two countries worked out to uh, agree that they are going to talk and act a positive manner. That's great. But uh, another uh, issue, uh, especially 
because the U.S. repeated its uh, rhetoric that it would stick to one-China uh, policy. Uh, let's take a closer uh, look at this. This you know, is not one-China principle. One-China principle has a number of components. The U.S. military should uh, leave Taiwan, and U.S. should not commit to defend Taiwan, and U.S. should not accord Taiwan with a statehood. But uh, in reality, the U.S. has the U.S. added something which is not in compliant with one-China uh, principle into one-China policy. Uh, primarily, the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act uh, makes it clear the U.S. Uh, is committed to Taiwan security. This is something that Taiwan security uh, should be an internal China issue. It should be committed by the mainland Chinese side, not by American side. And second, the 1982 President Reagan's six assurances to assure Taiwan security, to assure the U.S. officials should not make it clear that Taiwan is a part of uh, China. So U.S. tried to play ambiguous word, but the U.S. has added this component, uh, fixed assurances and Taiwan Relations Act into the one-China policy. And now the U.S. Congress is making a China, uh, Taiwan Policy Act which has not been successful, but once made, this would create a big shock wave to current China-U.S. relationship. So I personally would hope President Biden would stick to uh, the one-China uh, policy that at least does not contain the new component of Taiwan Policy Act. He should be courageous enough to disagree with the U.S. Congress anti-China movement that would only destabilize China-U.S. relationship and sabotage the outcome, the positive outcome of this summit. We hope that the United States could manage differences and sensitive issues in a constructive, calm, and professional way. Professor Chu, one last question, one minute to go very briefly. Uh, given what has been talked about from the two leaders, how do you look at China-U.S. diplomatic relations in the near future? Uh, I think uh, this meeting really will be a historical one. And I think the both sides if could figure out a correct way for peaceful uh, coexistence. And in the future, and this meeting, this summit will be written in uh, international relations history in the future. So I, I think really look forward and this meeting can stabilize uh, and uh, the bilateral relations and make the bilateral relations in a much more a stable, healthy, and a sustainable uh, development in the future. Okay, thank you, Professor Chu, and also Professor Shen Ding Li. That was Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University and Professor Shen Ding Li from Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. More to come, UN Security Council adopts resolution for humanitarian pauses in Gaza. This is World Today. We'll be back after a short break.
This is World Today with me, Anna, in Beijing. Charles Freeman was a senior U.S. diplomat and a main interpreter for President Richard Nixon during his 1972 China visit. He also witnessed the normalization of China-U.S. ties when the Shanghai communique was signed. My colleague Xu Qingduo sat down with Freeman to get his observations of China-U.S. ties. Let's take a listen. And now, you know, with this, uh, sometimes you would say, you know, value-based foreign policy making in Washington or largely in Western countries, and the people in China do see that as problematic because if you stress very much about the values or ideology, uh, ideologies, you know, you know, there's it's, it's a zero sum. It it's not about to, you know seeking common ground. No, I think actually um, one of the major problems I have with. The current U.S.-China policy、uh, is that it imputes to China ideological、uh, elements, which in fact I don't think exist.、Uh, China is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party,、uh, which is a Leninist organization.、Uh, but many of the objections to Chinese actions and behavior come from China's successful practice of free market economics.、Um, this is something very different from 1972, when China followed a different、uh, economic philosophy. One of Sui Gongsheng or、uh, autarky, self-reliance.、Uh, China since then has become the poster child, if you will, for globalized open trade and investment.、Uh, so I think、uh, there are some serious misunderstandings uh, in uh, on the American side of、uh, the current state of affairs in China, and I don't agree with the ideological condemnation of China because. While I don't agree with Chinese、uh, political values, I don't believe they are being correctly described.、Mm-hmm. Uh, what about uh, the? Uh, you know, I would say you know many people would believe that's the case.、Uh, the U.S. is seeking to maintain its global preeminent、uh, position, you know, as the only superpower in the world. So there's a fear, or there's a complexity of、um, whatever you say it,、uh, you know,、uh, of 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 the fear that China is catching up quickly, and China may over. Take the U.S. in in terms of this global、uh, status there, and that has led to the change of policy on China. Well, sometime around 1870, that is 150 years ago, the United States became the largest economy on the on the planet, and over the course of the 20th century, it became the most powerful society on the planet.、Uh, now it is having to adjust. Uh, to a reduced status.、Uh, that is to say, we are still very powerful, very wealthy, very important as a country.、Uh, but there are other countries rising、uh, to challenge、uh, our preeminence,、uh, primarily uh, China. Uh, we saw earlier in the 20th, late 20th century,、uh, Japanese psychological difficulty was dealing with Japan's loss of the status as. Number one in Asia to China.、Uh, now we're seeing something similar on the American side. I believe、uh, it is psychologically difficult to adjust. The facts speak for themselves.、Um, in terms of industrial production, the Chinese economy is already twice the size of that of the United States. In terms of purchasing power parity for GDP,、uh, the Chinese economy is probably one third larger than the United States economy. In nominal exchange rates, China's economy is only about two thirds the size of ours.、Uh, but、uh, China is clearly making huge progress. I think that's a very good thing. I think it's good for China. It should be good for the United States if we had policies that leveraged Chinese 
prosperity to buttress our own. Uh, but in fact, we're doing something quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Well, with uh, many issues, obviously, for the two leaders, for the two countries to handle. At the same time, we are seeing crises around the world, in the Ukraine crisis, and now you have Gaza crisis. Um, people are trying to see, to explore uh, if there are any chances for Beijing and Washington to work together, you know, to uh, probably help alleviate the situation, for example, in the Middle East. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I think the two issues, Ukraine uh, obviously has become a proxy war between the United States and the Russian, and the Russian Federation. Um, and um, uh, both are members of the Security Council, and that paralyzes the Security Council on that issue. Normally, one would hope that great powers like China, Russia, the United States, and the Europeans who are represented in the Security Council would work together uh, to promote peace, uh, end wars, mediate, conciliate, and so forth. But it is not possible when one of the parties to a conflict is a member of the Security Council. And unfortunately, in the Middle East, the United States is entirely complicit in the Israeli assaults on Gaza. Uh, we are, to the dismay of many of my fellow citizens, uh, participants in what can only be described as genocide. And the attitude of the United States in the Security Council has been that we don't want a ceasefire and we don't want a negotiation between the warring parties. Um, what is going on there is, moreover, a, an extension uh, into warfare, open warfare, of what has been low-intensity conflict for 75 years. Uh, so, um, and this 75-year period of low-intensity conflict has been, you know, has involved the United States for most of it. So I don't see much possibility of the United States and China working together on this issue, which I think is tragic. Um, I think we could work together uh, if, if the United States uh, were not a party to the war. Then you talked about the coming up of the uh, U.S. election, presidential election, in uh, you know very soon. Um, many people are trying to figure out, you know, how uh, you know whatever the rhetoric on the campaign trail will affect the relationship uh, with China, or you know um, maybe a Republican president uh, in that case. How will that affect the relationship uh, between the two countries? We can't really tell at this point. Uh, my sense is that our politics are in a state similar to that that preceded our civil war. That is when the established parties were replaced by new parties. It was the birth of the Republican Party, the anti-slavery movement, and so forth. Um, and my sense is that a great number of Americans don't want either of the main parties. Um, and that there is a chance that we will see a centrist challenge to the two-party system. Uh, more and more people are speculating about this. And uh, so I don't think we can tell at this point uh, what the result of the elections will be or what their impact on Sino-American relations might be. That was retired U.S. diplomat Charles Freeman speaking with my colleague Xu Qingduo. You're listening to Road Today. We'll be back. From sustainability and digitalization to trade, health, and energy security, 21 major Asian-Pacific economies gather to address the most pressing global challenges and to create a future of sustainable economic growth. Join CGTN for our coverage of APEC 2023. You've been listening to Road Today. 
The UN Security Council has approved a resolution calling for humanitarian pauses and corridors in Gaza, a long-awaited diplomatic breakthrough after four unsuccessful attempts to take action last month. The resolution won the support of 12 of the 15 council members. The United States, Russia, and Britain abstained. Since the conflict broke out on October 7th, over 10,000 people have been killed in Gaza. In Israel, over 1,200 deaths were reported, and over 200 people were taken hostage. So for more on the topic, let's have Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Wang. Thanks for having me. First of all, the resolution emphasizes humanitarian policies and corridors. So how do you envision these measures facilitating aid access and the release of hostages in the Gaza Strip? How urgent is such a resolution for the people in the crisis? I think it's a very strategic and milestone for the uh, for the pacifying attention in the Gaza Strip. Because then, as you mentioned, that's where it's solution that has been only started by international society. So, given the tension that is still ongoing in the Gaza Strip, it's quite necessary for the international society to take some measures uh, to uh, to to facilitate or to make some consensus over how to deal with. Uh, the problem in the galaxy. And on the other hand, we have to know that the resolution represents the very international consensus from the international society, especially from the political campaign of the United Nations. So uh, that means new hope and as well as the new uh, new future for the, on the one hand, to end the conflict in the galaxy between the Israelis and Hamas, and on the other hand, to, uh, to suggest that a very possible uh, set of uh, Professor Wong, what were the key obstacles that contributed to a months-long diplomatic impasse uh, marked by four unsuccessful attempts to take action? How were these challenges overcome to finally achieve a breakthrough? I think there were several uh, obstacles, and a lot of obstacles to the one hand. The very major obstacles for the, uh, for the, resolu- uh, for the resolution of an international consensus uh, was based upon the differences, uh, different divisions between Israelis and uh, Palestinians over what the, what the very means uh, for the recent crisis. Because from the Israeli perspective, they believe they are taking their, they are uh, upholding their rights of so-called self-defense. So Israelis uh, perceive themselves as the victim of this new round of the conflict between Israelis and Hamas. So that is why we always defended and highlighted the very right of so-called self-defense. So they believe that they have the legal rights to take military operations against the Hamas in the Gaza Strip, even in the, at the cost of a lot of civilians. 
in the of the Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip, but from the perspective of uh, Palestinians as well as the international society, they believe that there uh, should be should some kind of should be some kind of the limit, or should be some kind of the deadline for the for for the Israeli military operation. It means that the Israeli Catholic right of uh, so-called self-defense, but Israeli cannot uh, expand it on their own uh, standards. That uh, the, the civilians' lives and social uh, social lives in the Gaza Strip of the local Palestinians should be secured and should not mm-hmm. be uh, you know, should not be, uh, uh, be damaged and threatened by the Israeli military operation. So I think this major obstacles also exists in the international society. So some states defended the, the so-called self-defense rights of Israeli, while some other states defended the, the, the rights of the Palestinians. But now, given that the ongoing warfare has continued, I think they have already, uh, the, the situation has all been transformed. So I think in, that is why the resolution could be successfully reached in the security campaign. Professor, we know the Council stalemate has largely been centered on whether to call for a humanitarian pause or a ceasefire. Could you please help us understand the significance of the debate between a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause in the context of the Israel-Palestine conflict? Uh, I think there's a quite a big difference because when, they, when we talk about the, the ceasefire, it means the, the ceasefire should be uh, constructed upon the willingness and the consensus between the two different different uh, uh, conflicting parties. Uh, but when we're talking about the force, it means uh, the force can be made by other party uh, of the conflicting sides, and also the force should, uh, should be constructed upon the very uh, 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 unilateral, unilateral decision of the conflicting parties of one side. So actually, from the international societies, uh, uh, they believe that the ceasefire is important, but the ceasefire should be constructed upon the mutual, uh, on the one hand, the mutual uh, willingness of the both conflicting parties, and, and also on the other hand, it should be constructed upon the, the mutually recognized the legal rights of the conflicting parties uh, of the uh, of the of, uh, between Israeli and, and Hamas. But given the problem that uh, the Hamas and what Israeli leave are they actually fine? They deny the, the legitimacy of each other, so it's very difficult to reach the ceasefire in the very short term. So I think uh, this is why maybe the force could be used as a term uh, in the future for the international society to facilitate the, the so-called ceasefire between the conflicting parties. But no matter what kind of a term, the most important thing is to end the conflict as soon as possible and mm-hmm. to start. The humanitarian aid as soon as possible. That is the most urgent issue right now. Speaking of that, and also given uh, so many challenges the resolution faced, how do you interpret the abstentions from the United States, Russia, and Britain in the recent vote on the resolution regarding the conflict? Because there were still a lot of divisions, uh, divisions over how the resolution should be made and how the situation mechanism should be constructed. And how the ending of the round of the conflict should be uh, facilitated. So the division is still there. The United States has their own opinion. Russia has their own opinion. Britain and other uh, maybe European countries, um, other maybe Arab states, they have their own opinion. So this actually, uh, these opinions and divisions are so uh, are so big and so apparent that it makes it very difficult to, to bridge this gap in the very short term. So even as we see some uh, abstentions 
uh, from the United States, from the Russian groups, and yes, they, they, they didn't say yes, they didn't say no, but they actually they also expressed their uh, attitudes in, the, in, in this round of the vote that they hope to see the kind of the resolution could be made in the United Security Council. So that is why I think even they didn't, they didn't say yes, but actually it also they contributed a lot to the new resolutions that have the local politics there. About the division you just mentioned, the resolution does not explicitly condemn the Hamas attack on October 7th. What implications might this have? I mean, what impact do you think the diplomatic stance of major powers has on this resolution's effectiveness? I think, uh, uh, yes, they didn't. Uh, the resolution did not highlight the very uh, about the possibility uh, uh, in the recent uh, crisis. But on the other hand, they also uh, expressed very clearly the, the, the condemnation about, uh, over against the Israeli civilians. So actually, I mean, it's not, uh, partially, uh, I mean, partially they actually uh, 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 supported, uh, even in part, Israeli suffering. I mean, expressed the Israeli suffering in this round of the conflict. And on the other hand, they also condemned the Israeli's uh, uh, military operations against the uh, Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip. So they actually, this resolution, uh, uh, to maintain a kind of the balance in this in, uh, in, in their in their expressing it and uh, their uh, interpretation, and we have to know that there was still some kind of division, and this division is so clear, uh, so strong that uh, it's not be situation in very short term. And uh, I think maybe there was still some division, and how this uh, how this resolution should be made and how the future should be constructed, but the consensus are the most important right now in the international society. So, given what has been talked about, how do you think the international community perceives the Security Council's response to the crisis overall in the past month? I think we, we have to, I think we need to perceive this resolution as a very important diplomatic as well as a political victory, because on the one hand, it was um, because the United Nations resolution was uh, reached I mean, after uh, one month long of disagreements, disputes, and discussions in the, in the international society, especially on the United Nations platform. So, so when, when finally, actually, the resolution was made, uh, it's a very big victory for the United Nations Security Council members. And also, on the other hand, it can be perceived and interpreted as a major victory uh, for the future blueprint. Uh, to how to manage the, the the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestinian in Gaza Strip, and it also gave the hope for us to uh, to to to, uh, to how to uh, construct a very co-shared and co uh, co-agreed the willingness of uh, the, the 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 mechanism in the future to have a local Palestinian there. So I think it's a very big victory. I mean, international society will accept this uh, solution. And also will will uh, will contribute a lot to have the uh, the peace process between Israel and Palestinian in the Gaza Strip. Okay, thanks, Dr. Wang, for your time and insightful opinions. That's Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. China's Beidou Navigation Satellite System has achieved recognition from ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, meeting global standards in the realm. The ICAO's technical verification or testimony to the system's ability to provide navigation services for various industries around the world 
road, as one of four global satellite navigation systems recognized by the United Nations. Beidou system has served more than 200 countries and regions to date. So to talk more on this, joining us on the line is Zhang Fan, Associate Professor of Astronomy Department of Beijing Normal University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Zhang. Hello. First of all, can you provide an overview of the Beidou Navigation Satellite System and its significance in the realm of global navigation? Right. So it is one of the four global navigation constellations out there. Um, there are smaller ones that cover re only regional parts, but globally there are four. They're the uh, American GPS, this is the original first one, the Global mm -hmm. Positioning System. Uh, and then there's China's Beidou, there's uh, the Russia's Glona, and then the uh, the European Union's um, Galileo. Uh, so originally there's only GPS, uh, but then once when the U.S. is is involved in any kind of conflict, they tend to sort of turn down the, uh, the accuracy um, for civilian use um, or just shut down the uh, the service over the entire region. So obviously this can be quite dangerous if you have signs of stuff going nearby. Um, and for other reasons, um, all these countries decided that they need their own version of the system. Mm -hmm. um, so so now there, there are four. And um, they're not all sort of individual separate things. Um, they combine into something called uh, GNSS, the Global uh, Unified Network. Um, this is useful because um, the more satellites you can see in the sky, the more accurate your positioning would be. So if you can see all four, then obviously it's better than having just one. Mm -hmm. And right now, Beidou is in its third generation. Um, the first generation is sort of um, more... You need to talk to the, to the satellites, and, and that's not very friendly for, for wide use. And second generation, it covers only the Asia-Pacific region. And third generation, with the new inter-satellite uh, monitoring capabilities, so having satellites monitor each other. So China doesn't need to have uh, ground stations around the world to, to be able to see all the satellites all the time. Um, so that allows the, uh, the third generation to have global coverage. That's how, uh, how they join the club of this, uh, this global network. But, but how does Beidou system differ from other global satellite navigation systems? What unique capabilities does they offer? Right. So there's some legacy uh, features that, that has become really useful. For example, in the uh, in the first generation, uh, because the, the way it works is you need to send signals to the satellites, and then and then somewhere, uh, some station on the ground will compute your, your location, uh, and then send the information back to you. Uh, this is not how the GPS system works. GPS all the computations done locally on your phone, um, but having this legacy capability allows you to send text messages uh, mm. through this uh, Beidou system, uh, which means if you're uh, hiking in the mountains and you got lost, you don't need a satellite phone. You just have your regular phone and you can talk to the satellites. You can use it essentially as a satellite phone. And that has become really useful for, uh, for uh, 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 some, some enthusiasts. Mm. Um, and then also because the second generation covers only a, a, a small region. That means the, um, some of the constellation has satellites um, that are geostationary or geosynchronous, essentially staying over just one spot on Earth. Um, and it's, it's almost always sort of right over your, your head, on, on top of your head. 
which means it's harder for it to get blocked by uh, sort of buildings and stuff. And the signals wouldn't bounce off buildings quite badly as if you've seen it just over the horizon, seeing the, the satellites just over the horizon, which means um, it, you probably get better coverage that way. Um, so, so that kind of features um, combined um, gives Beidou some, some unique capabilities. Mm-hmm. I think that's why a lot of uh, Chinese smartphone companies adopted this new technology into their phone, right, recently. Right. Um, so it's essentially all of the new shipments of phones, uh, 98% or something like that, um, would support Beidou. Uh, and two-thirds of them also can do this messaging. The messaging is more demanding because you need to have certain three watts of power to be able to talk to the satellite. But pretty much uh, all of them uh, support Beidou in one way or another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then, Professor, in what ways had the International Civil Aviation Organization its recognition impact the global acceptance and usage of Beidou in civil aviation? Um, so, so this organization set the industry standard. Um, essentially, tells the airlines, tell the, uh, the aircraft manufacturers how they should incorporate Beidou into their system, um, and then how they how how to merge it with the uh, with the other like GPS systems. Um, so all in all, by combining all these systems, essentially all these GNSS sort of global four networks, uh, not just Beidou and GPS, um, you can improve the, uh, the sort of reliability of the system. Like I said, if the U.S. is involved in some armed conflict and you just happen to fly nearby, then mm-hmm. uh, you better have the other three working. Um, also, um, you, you get better accuracy. Uh, because of air, airplanes, it's, it's not just two-dimensional, uh, sort of east-west, north-west, uh, north-south. You also need an altitude. Um, so, so, so this sort of being able to see more satellites um, helps you with that. So, so this standard, I think, in the future would enable a gradual replacement of the old GPS-only systems with the uh, four system um, GNSS. Um, sort of combined um, larger, larger, larger network. Then, Professor, what other industries besides civil aviation benefit from Beidou navigation services? How has it demonstrated its ability to serve diverse sectors? Um, the, the one that people are most familiar with is, is, is obviously car navigation. Mm. Um, you know, you open your, your, your app on the, on the phone and then... Uh, you try to go somewhere, and then that's actually using Beidou. Um, even outside of China, um, a lot of people don't necessarily know because um, GPS, because being the first one out, it's the default. Um, when people talk about satellite navigation, they, they use the word GPS, but it's not necessarily GPS. It's also GPS plus Beidou plus the others as well. Mm. Um, so this this is used a lot. And also, the, uh, the global... Satellites, they, they don't just give you position. They also give you time. And this is quite important for putting, for example, timestamps on financial transactions. You know, when you do a trade, what time is it happened matters quite a lot. Um, so that kind of thing, um, timestamps and, and location positions, um, they all use it. Okay, thanks, Professor Zhang. That's Zhang Fan, Associate Professor of Astronomy Department of Beijing Normal University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.